it, these have been tough because it's it's I sit down, and I look at a topic like compliance, and I easily come up with five, six questions. And that's why I ultimately drove to having each topic having two different episodes with with two separate panels, because there's just so much to talk about on any one of these topics that I kind of had to divide and conquer them. And really, any one of these questions could be a, a whole half hour episode by themselves. Brought to you by Island, this is the Cloud Bytes podcast, where we've brought together a panel of opinionated cloud customers, providers, and analysts to discuss topics related to how clouds are built, marketed, and consumed. Everyone has different needs in the cloud, so we'll debate the topic at hand, and at the very least, agree to disagree. Our goal is to provide good sound bites about how to manage your bytes in the cloud. And sometimes the best conclusion may simply be that the cloud bites. This episode is all about how customers should assess the compliance cloud providers provide. My name is Brian Knutson. I'm a cloud technologist for ILAN and will be acting as our moderator for today's discussion. This episode's panel includes real-world practitioners of information security to meet complex compliance. Let's start with having each of our panelists quickly introduce themselves with their current role and a soundbite of their initial thoughts about what is important about being compliant in the cloud. Thank you, Brian. My name is Trevor Pott. I'm technical security lead at Juniper Networks. And my view on compliance anywhere is that compliance is a nice start, but it's only a start. My name is Christopher Cusick. I'm CXI on Twitter, and I've written numerous papers on compliance and specifically around FedRAMP as well. So my take on compliance is it's all about choosing whether it's a checkbox or a checkbook journey and trying to see where you fit within that. But ideally, a business should focus on actually working with their infrastructure and not just simply trying to checkbox. Thank you both for joining me. An ever-increasing complication to running a business is ensuring that your IT systems are compliant with legal regulations. This is especially complicated if your company is servicing customers in different countries. Just like security, ensuring compliance is a major concern for companies considering utilizing the cloud. But though highly intertwined, security and compliance are very different. And trust is obviously a huge component of moving data operations to the cloud to begin with. Christopher, does having a wide range of compliance badges automatically engender trust in a provider? No, just by having the badge itself does not in any way give any sense of implied trust or otherwise. However, there's a, a common misconception there that I just want to address. It's the confusion around compliance, how it aligns to security, and then how privacy may play into all of that, and how those are all three drastically different pieces of it. However, more often than not, when people talk about compliance, they're not talking about security or privacy. They're talking about compliance, the ability to ensure they don't get fined by not being compliant with a particular thing. And there was a time, a few years ago even, that we don't even have to go back five and ten years, even just a few years ago, where a lot of the major cloud service providers couldn't check any of the compliance boxes in any good manner or fashion. However, here in the present era, as we stand here in May 1st, 2020, the ability to legitimately have good levels of compliance where they've done their due diligence, they've gone and uh, achieved that badge to where it's something that you can hold them legally and financially responsible for it, where you feel a lot better about it than you did a few years ago. It's less of a, oh, which cloud provider happens to have the compliance checkbox I'm looking for? And it's uh, giving you that free choice of 
they all seem to have an equal representation of that compliance. And it's a matter of putting your application and your workload in the appropriate environment and not having to worry about choosing one that feels like it's checking that particular box. I oddly enough can't disagree with this, which, you know, considering Chris and I typically disagree on things, I think that one of the big additions that I would like to make this is compliance is about solving the problems that we encountered in the past. It's not about preventing future problems. And this is, I think, where a lot of companies end up falling down. They may be regulatory compliant with X, but that doesn't necessarily prevent a breach. It doesn't mean that their data can't be stolen for industrial espionage purposes and so on and so forth. So compliance is, you know, it's this nice start And it gives you a good baseline, but you do have to ask questions about that shared security model. Which chunks of this compliance is your cloud vendor taking care of? What chunks do you need to take care of? And do you really understand where your responsibilities begin and end? And have you you made plans for that? And beyond that as well, there's compliance issues that are a lot more thorny, especially if you're not located in the US, that the regulations, and I'm thinking specifically here about the GDPR, are not explicit. They rely on you to make reasonable best efforts to solve a problem. But what is considered a reasonable best effort is a moving target. Industry standards change as the industry becomes better at things. And that means that essentially, the legal requirements that you are expected to meet at least in the EU are sort of this moving target that you always have to keep aware of. The point around GDPR from a cloud compliance standpoint is they'll give you that assurance. We are GDPR compliant, they'll say, or, you know, I've got air quotes here, or they'll provide that assurance to you that we check those boxes to allow you to be GDPR compliant. But that in no way makes the vendor and their application be able to fulfill the rules that fall within GDPR does, hey, we have our database. We're stored here. Perfect. All right. We get a request that came in and said we need to remove some data. We can't do that. We have no mechanism to do that. But you're GDPR compliant. Like, yeah, we are. Here's our badge. But we can't actually fulfill any of the rights and rules and requirements that happen to fall within this. So just because people, they can say they are, but that doesn't mean that they are. And that definitely doesn't mean that they can achieve what you want to accomplish in these contexts. And that's kind of to the point of what you're saying is, you know, just because someone says they can do something, they may not understand the nuance of it. And that's that nuance often heavily lives deeply within legal and lives within a policy group, and then often falls on the shoulders of IT to implement or make that possible, which there can be many disconnects in that realm, effectively. And one thing that I'd like to add to that is that the boundaries that are imposed by these cloud providers or imposed upon these cloud providers are something that you have to be very, very careful about because the cloud provider's goal is to limit their own liability. And they will do this predominantly by making sure that they can't crack open whatever your data is and get it the way surprise. If they can get themselves to a zero-knowledge environment where they literally cannot open your VM, open your database, look at your files, etc. 
That is their ideal state because they don't want to have any liability there. But that also means that how you control access to it, what your data is, whether or not you're deleting stuff, that's all on you. It's not on the cloud provider in any way, shape, or form. So they're GDPR compliant predominantly in they can't crack it open. I want to talk about that for a moment around cracking it open and and people securing the content and a level of responsibility and integrity that happens to be going with things. We're we're just entering to the forays of uh, this coronavirus, this COVID-19 passing around. And all of these nation states are passing around this era of we need to do contact tracing. I've got some friends in deep state security stuff, and we have these platforms that are published on the internet for contact tracing to be used by these vendors. And uh, on day one of release, they found that uh, these things are wide open to the internet, unprotected, no credentials, with data backups on S3, with no security. So that feels good. And that's kind of one of the big problems that we face is while this information has been reported, that tends to be a problem that is present in many businesses. They'll have all of this sensitive data, this sensitive workload, whether it be credit card information, PII, healthcare data, all of this information, our information that we entrust upon organizations to protect for us. And then they just leave it in open S3 shares, or they just leave it in these open buckets on the internet for anybody to be able to access, whether it be to read it or in some cases to modify or delete it. And that's terrifying. And yet these organizations will still come to you with a badge saying, we're compliant. And that's kind of the crux of why we tend to be so passionate around this discourse around compliance and how compliance does not equal security and it does not equal privacy and how those things are they're not even a triad they're three different pillars that are fundamentally and important but are in no way dependent upon each other but as far as the populace may see those as synonymous in some way well and to extend that as well compliance means nothing unless there is enforcement You need transparency, you need regular auditing, and you need enforcement. Compliance that is simply, we created a standard and we're asking organizations to effectively voluntarily comply because we're never actually going to crack down on them is worthless. And this is as much a political thing as it is a practical thing. I mean, there are practical reasons why some of these are not enforced, but politically, Different countries have very, very different viewpoints on how both governments and private organizations should approach privacy, should approach data use, should approach encryption. And because there are these wildly differing views, not just between countries, but between entire power blocks of countries... This results in some pretty tense international disagreements, which result in toothless agreements to enforce things, which is how we got to where we are today. So that's one of the reasons I maintain a server distancing, keeping my servers six feet away from each other in the data center in order to reduce ransomware and malware attacks. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. If your data does not exist in at least two places, it doesn't exist. So, Trevor, we've touched a little bit on, you know, having the badge doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing what you say you're doing or that you can actually execute on the things that the compliance implies. So, you know, how transparent should providers be 
in how they're dealing with compliance and how much should customers really dig into the details and really hold providers' feet to the fire so that they can know whether they're actually able to stand behind the badge that they show? Trust no one, trust nothing, and make sure that you are confident in your own ability to secure everything. And this is where I sort of have to go put my vendor hat on a bit and say, you know, one of the best things that you can do is make sure that you implement your own security on premises and in the cloud. Cloud provides you a bunch of security. Great. But it is worth getting a proper virtual enterprise firewall and putting it in front of your cloud workloads. It is worth joining up all of your firewalls that are on-premises, in the cloud, at the edge, whatever, into a single unified management interface and making sure that you can push out policy to all of them. You can have advanced security functionality that's dealing with security at the network level, etc. I realize that essentially what I'm parroting is Juniper's own narrative, but I helped come up with that and we came up with it for a reason. And that is because this is right now the best way to deal with this is to have control over all of your data, over all of your networking, where your packets go, how they're stored, all of your policies, all of your profiles, access control lists. It cannot be something you do manually. It cannot be something that you trust in another cloud provider or vendor to do by default for you. Make sure that you're defining this stuff somewhere centrally, that you're pushing it out, that you're managing it, you're regularly reviewing it, that you're getting third-party audits. Don't trust anything you don't control directly. The flip side of the trust no one model with the trust but verify, comma, often. And I'm fully in agreement with what you're saying, but there comes a point where you have trusted relationships where you reach a point of, we trusted our data, it's our information. We established criterion on this and this belongs to us cool we now trust this great you trust it i believe in you absolutely verify that okay we verified it we have confirmed that our data is trustworthy as it was five minutes ago that's amazing verify that often because people will trust it maybe and then they'll verify maybe a very soft maybe but once it's gotten past those two checkpoints they'll never look at that data again so they don't know if that data is good after that point at all i like to attribute this to the infamous but yet non-existent twitter no follow bug we have no ability for the system to go through and indiscriminately remove people you follow on a regular basis that's not the way our system works yet it does and eventually they said maybe it's there but it doesn't it's not there and maybe we even scrap this whole part of the uh, part. <laughs> but it's true that more organizations do not trust their information or they implicitly trust all of their information with very little to no verification and very little frequency of actually checking on that information afterwards. Because if you can get some bad information filled into an organization and you can build upon that, I certainly know... The entire Wikipedia structure is based upon a trust with an asterisk and verification and then often verification where people can go and add good or bad data and go and modify that data, you know, roughly indiscriminately, you know, to infinity and beyond effectively. So 
I agree, but I would, again, like to extend. I think that where we're getting here is we're moving this little bit away from compliance and we're actually getting into what are the practical implications of the security and privacy aspects. You were absolutely dead on when you said what you get when you do a verification of your existing security infrastructure is you know what the state was at time of that verification. You have limited means to ensure that things still are the way they were the last time you looked at them. Now, I say limited because we have a few tools. This is where we can look at things like configuration management. So CloudFormation, Puppet, Chef, Ansible, SaltStack, you name it. These do happen to, for many workloads, sit in the background and just verify that your configs are the way that they're supposed to be. And it's a great start, but we still have a long way to go here. This is where if you get into sort of the more information security focused chunk of the world, you're talking about mitigation, incident response. You know, there are layers to how we have to do security And it's not just a matter of fire and forget. You really do have to be constantly monitoring everything. You have to be able to react to anything you detect quickly. So one of the things that I really like about what Juniper has available is if we detect that there's some untoward happening, we can have that push a policy down all the way down to the you know, physical switch port or to the Wi-Fi access point or your, you know, virtual firewall or whatever. And we quarantine any workload that happens to be misbehaving or looks like it's deviating from norm in any way. And that's critical. That capability has to exist and it has to be plumbed in. You have to have this part of your business processes. You have to have this built into your monitoring, all of it. And this is where I say that compliance is a good start, but do have to Take those next steps because compliance is only preparing you for the problems that we knew existed a while ago and have made their way through a legislative process. Bad guys are faster than that. They're iterating and adapting faster than you can imagine. So you have to design an infrastructure that's capable of responding to new change. And that's the thing that always gets lost in compliance discussions is that adaptation to change. Yeah, as we've looked at our own customers at iLand, we've seen some interesting use cases where DR and backup have helped customers identify things. So simple example is, you know, if all of a sudden our utilization of our backup capacity shoots up real fast all of a sudden, that could be a great indication that massive change is going on. And if that massive change isn't because of, you know, some sort of patching schedule or something like that, it could be indicative of ransomware showing up. Deviation from norm, it's a very important thing to look for. Exactly. And we give customers the ability to see that and see trend lines and stuff like that so that they can go in and identify those on their own and be able to say, hey, wait, something's going on here. Dig into it. And, you know, maybe they find ransomware a week before it even actually starts to take hold to the point where they have to execute some really bad situations. So one of the challenges I find in the entire realm of compliance It's not maintaining compliance. That's its own challenge, but I find the biggest challenge surrounding achieving compliance. I've worked with numerous organizations in the realm of PCI compliance, and PCI is its own 
moving target that constantly changes on a regular basis when they release a new version of it. However, when an organization tries to achieve PCI compliance, they'll often have to take their infrastructure and bring it within the scope of the CDE, their cardholder data environment, right? And one of the greatest challenges I find within that is, as I have a security vulnerability remediation and scanning type business and firm, is more often these businesses will have rampant vulnerabilities living within their infrastructure that make them out of compliance with PCI. And those types of issues need to be addressed. And then that's kind of, it's too seated as far as that problem goes. If they were to minimize the scope of the CDE substantially to where it becomes a very small microcosm and it only affects a few devices, perhaps those devices will be able to be within PCI compliance and they're going to be fine. But then they'll have the rest of their organization that may not need to be, quote, PCI compliant, yet is filled with decades old vulnerabilities ready to bring the infrastructure down at any given point. And the best word I can use for it is it's terrifying because the number of organizations out there to what Trevor was saying earlier is once you've got an organization where they're up and you've established a baseline, you've got uh, methods in there or uh, maintaining things, whether, you know, chef, Ansible, others, you've got it and you have that established baseline, you're moving forward. That's great. A lot of these organizations, a baseline is so far out that we're just trying to get to day zero because they're day, you know, day 10 years at that moment, trying to reach that point of day zero. It's easier from a purely cloud-centric stance if you're standing up brand new applications stood up in the cloud that are built cloud-ready. You have a chance to actually reach that point of day zero and being able to operate going forward with levels of compliance built in with baselines where these things are built from good operating models that were good at that time. But I find the greater reality is people will forklift move applications directly into the cloud or they'll operate in a hybrid model or even just their local on-premises instances. And in those, you know, still needing to be compliant environments, it's a dumpster fire. There's a lot of problems and they're not being addressed. I've found from scanning we'll say uh, tens of thousands of IP addresses that the median vulnerability I've been finding has been five years with the longer ones tending to be 10 to 12 years old. These are well-known, great, critical, you know, uh, level 10 CVSS entries that could bring an environment down or you can go and compromise them very easily. They're just sitting there in plain sight, often sitting on critical servers. And that's, Sadly, more of the business that happens to be out there in these small, mid-sized and larger enterprises than it's not. And uh, to the prior point, it's kind of terrifying. Yes. And what you're talking about is actually something that is very well known within the information security circles. Nobody has patched all their vulnerabilities. One of the talks that was given at RSA this year was actually about exactly this. And it wasn't just acknowledging that, by the way, every environment has known vulnerabilities in it, because patching does require that you take things down. It causes outages, and scheduling this stuff does not allow organizations of virtually any size to actually patch everything. Then we have to have conversations about what to patch. Do you patch only the critical CVEs first? 
again, one of the talks at RSA this year made a compelling case for why that isn't the best way to go about it. And this, I think, is an active area of research within the information security community, how to determine what to patch and when and why. And this is also where things like network segmentation come into play. And it's also why you need to be monitoring beyond the perimeter. You need to be monitoring everything, east-west as well as north-south, because compromise can happen anywhere in the network. And you're not going to create a pristine environment where everything is perfect all the time. But what you can do is you can start monitoring the environment you have right now, today, and you can baseline. And then you can start looking for deviations. When you go in and you make a change and you secure something, you rebaseline. And you should be doing automated rebaselining. And yeah, it's a bit of work to get there, but you can't really move forward until you can instrument what you already have. And so this conversation about security versus compliance versus the ability to meet unknown threats, it has to start with, what do you actually know about your environment? Not just from monitoring, but even from an asset management standpoint, especially in larger organizations, these are often open questions. Let me ask this question because it actually kind of parallels with the other compliance episode that I recorded yesterday. I think with compliance in mind there, Trevor, Compliance can sometimes help push that evaluation. Like if you're having to approach a new compliance measure, GDPR, you know, you're moving into some new thing that some states creating can force you to then look at how you're doing managing operating things. Do you see that as a good, essentially a stick to push organizations into doing that reevaluation? I think that that really is going to depend upon the organization. Different organizations have different beliefs when it comes to the importance of security, the importance of privacy, the importance of compliance. And they are all separate things. But if I were looking at how am I going to begin my journey at an organization where none of these are really big priorities, I would actually go back to something that Chris had said, which is, this is easier if you are to start this somewhere in the cloud. And if you're looking at your entire network, top to bottom, and going, we need to secure this all, we need to make it all compliant, we need to whatever, it's going to look insurmountable. But if you just start with one application or one group of applications, and you learn how to instrument this, and you learn how to impose your own control upon it, then it becomes easier to do the next project like that maybe eventually to start going into some of your brownfield space and converting some of your existing infrastructure into that. But another path forward that is reasonable is to phase out the old stuff that you haven't secured and bring new stuff in that's secured from the start. Each organization has to have its own path. And I don't think that there's any way that any of us can go in and say, this is the one true way all organizations will do this, because it's up to the politics and the incentives within that organization. The interesting point and the quandary that we've faced numerous times, which has been responsibility versus accountability. And where is that particular hat? 
And I've found to a point you were saying earlier, it's true that vendors like Juniper and others can help organizations establish that baseline so they can start to get a handle on their environment to meet and achieve compliance and start to address the flaws, hopefully on their own terms. And that tends to be something that at least IT can do while they try to figure out who's responsible and who's accountable for the things. Because if an organization does not meet their compliance checkboxes, who pays that tariff effectively? Is it IT or is it the business? And that's a problem that often needs to be dealt with, typically in legal, but usually needs to be established within the organization. Each group has their respective lanes. And when you don't know who has the responsibility or accountability to try to address these problems, it can be a great challenge, we'll say. Yes, the shared security model goes beyond just the division of responsibility between a cloud provider and the organization. I think within organizations, the different departments have to be able to figure out how they are sharing security, but also much more to it than just a cloud provider and a consuming organization. Somewhere in there, there's usually a managed service provider or a managed security service provider, and they often have much to bring to the table. But different cloud providers are worth different amounts when it comes to the kind of service that you can get. Here's actually where I'd like to, you know, point out Island, who are the ones that are running this uh, podcast. They have this sort of white glove service where they will help you solve a lot of the infrastructure problems that you might have migrating your stuff to the cloud, getting involved in the cloud in the first place. And that human contact and that human oversight does make a difference. The experience of people, as opposed to just blindly pushing a button and trusting that it knows what it's going to do. You know, as we all know in tech, turn it off and turn it on again is the number one thing you try. But we try this because the tech that we work with every day regularly does such stuff that if we wanted to explain it, we would be spending hours diving into the logs, whereas just rebooting it will correct whatever it was and get it working back to whatever the conditions were that we defined in the first place. That gap between expected and actual, that's where experience matters. And that's where having individuals and organizations that are willing to come in, whether it's professional services direct from a vendor like Juniper or Microsoft or it's from a cloud provider like Island, or it's any of the service providers that exist in between that can fill those gaps, somewhere along the way, your organization has to divvy up where the responsibilities lie amongst all of those providers and internally to your own organization. And that's difficult, complex, and it's usually a process of negotiation between all the stakeholders. About responsibility of cloud providers, this is a challenge that I've seen for Many years, and when it comes regarding compliance backup, DR, and so many other things, the challenge that would come up is I'd have a customer, they're running an application, and there was a problem with the application. They're saying, Well, that's the responsibility of the cloud vendor. I'm like, Oh, did you pay for that? Like, no, they do that for us. I'm like, The provide that as an option. If you pay for it, they'll do anything you want. As long as you've, you know, you write a check for it. But if you expect them to be backing your data up, unless you're paying for backup, they're not backing it up. But I put my data out there, I'm gonna put my server and they're gonna replicate it to all these regions. Awesome. You set up the replication for those regions, right? No, they take care of that for me. 
No. So maybe a cloud provider uh, that you have to be working with on behalf will set those things up for you. But if someone just goes with a credit card to Amazon or Microsoft or Google and just expects them to do everything for them, uh, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen when it comes to workloads, workloads management, backup and the like. And it's definitely not going to happen when it comes to compliance. And that's a misconception some people may have just because the cloud provider can give you compliance within certain areas, PCI, ISO, all these different areas. It says, hey, we're compliant here. That doesn't make you compliant. You still have to do your part. You know, just because you throw your data into a bucket in no way makes it compliant unless there was a contract you signed and agreed to and that other party said they were going to do certain things and they handed you, you know, a certificate. And that may be the case when working with, you know, third party organizations who put your data out there who are giving you those assurances. But a credit card logging right into, you know, the Azure portal or on Amazon is going to give you zero of those assurances if you think it's happening. I think you need to check that again. Cloud does not mean you get to turn your brain off. Cloud just means that there's a bunch of new stuff you have to learn. (laughs) Yeah. In some levels, you're offloading or outsourcing the effort, but you're not necessarily, rarely are outsourcing the responsibility. So it's still on everybody individually to make sure that what they need to provide to their customers are getting from their providers. It's not a pass-through situation, but... Great conversation. So many great points. I'm going to try and wrap it up as best I can without leaving out any of the good bits. First of all, start with security, privacy, and compliance are not necessarily the same thing. They are separate things. And keep in mind that compliance is really about checking boxes that apply to the past, not necessarily to the future. So if you really want to be a good steward to your customers, and you're going into the cloud or any compliance situation, make sure you're doing above and beyond what you have to do. Because compliance is a good baseline, but you know bad guys move faster than legislation. So it's not the goal. It should be the minimum threshold that you start with. And keep in mind that that nuance is important and makes the puzzle really difficult. And that's where cloud providers can sometimes come in and help to provide that expertise that some customers may need. You know, as you're picking your providers, always assume they'll fail at some level. We say that with, you know, that server may go down, that virtual machine may automatically get rebooted, or it may never even get rebooted. Make sure you know how to recover that. Make sure you've still got DR and backups for stuff in the cloud. But it also applies to security. I mean, the cloud providers are not going to provide all the security you need in every situation. You know, leaky buckets is not necessarily Amazon's fault just because it's Amazon's infrastructure. Cloud providers want to avoid liability, so they're going to generally want to avoid having access to your data and creating problems for their customers. So you as a customer still need to have control, still have to have that visibility, still need to verify on a regular basis what's going on. And moving to the cloud can sometimes help as well as, you know, identifying new compliance can help with, you know, making sure you've got the right things in place. Now, whether it's moving your stuff to someplace else or it's investigating to make sure you've got the proper controls in place, you know, they're forcing functions. And sometimes that is the forcing function that business needs, which is why we have to enshrine it into law. And ultimately, you know, make sure you understand what protections the cloud provider is providing you. Just because they're compliant doesn't mean that it's going to cover all your compliance needs. It may just cover a subset of what you need. 
And ideally, a good cloud provider that's truly a partner with you in the cloud will help you to identify those and work through that kind of stuff. So with that, let's finish off this episode of the Cloud Bytes podcast. Thank you to Trevor and Christopher for a great conversation. Always thanks to ILAN for making this podcast possible. Please check out the episode notes, the panelist contact information, further information on this topic, and all the other episodes at cloudbytes.cloud. You can also find our episodes on your favorite podcast apps. And if you found this content useful, we'd really appreciate you sharing with your friends and colleagues and rating us on your favorite podcast platforms. And thank you for joining us for this episode of the CloudBytes podcast. Sir, I, I, I advance the hypothesis that the three of us are getting old. There are people who have only been born in this century that are now old enough to vote. That is all I'm going to say. <laughs> oh, I have two of them in my house. I have one. <laughs>